morning. I'm so glad to be back with you guys. Our sending church sends their greetings with me. Uh, it was wonderful uh, to go there uh, on uh, your behalf to talk with our sending church. Kayla and I, of course, went out for some recreation, but uh, we're, you're not going to be able to go to the hometown of your sending church without giving some updates. Uh, and uh, it was so uh, kind and gracious of them uh, to host us. We had a lot of dinners, a lot of meetings, uh, and the whole time it was just so clear uh, that they were just so desirous to hear what was going on here. They just wanted to know what God was doing in the hill country uh, and recognize none of them know almost any of you, but yet their hearts were here, and it was very clear to recognize that their love and their thoughts and their prayers uh, were here. They wanted to know, how was this church imitating God? How is this church uh, replicating what is happening there here? And it was just so wonderful to hear. And as I was even uh, given the opportunity to go to a staff lunch there with the staff of about 50 or 60, uh, they were asking for an update. Uh, and uh, the lead pastor there, Pastor Mike, was like, you know, the, the one thing that we want to see uh, is that like us, that you guys would go someday plant more churches, which is the prayer, which is the expectation that we would go do that. Uh, really, though, uh, all of that can be wound up in a, a single word that we would be imitators, that we would go and imitate the faith of our sending church by us as we grow and as we become mature in our faith, that we too would go imitate that faith and ourselves go have a daughter church and a granddaughter church throughout the generations as we continue seeing the planting of gospel-centered, Bible-saturated churches. Now, I share that not only to give you an update of uh, our trip, but to uh, bring us to this term of imitation. And we see it in Ephesians 5. Uh, you can even jot that down as we get into uh, the close of the ethical portion of the Sermon on the Mount. There is this need for us to think through a text like Ephesians 5 uh, to understand where we're going in Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Because if we're not careful, we're going to miss the main thrust of Matthew 7, 7 through 12, uh, if we don't recognize this idea that Christ is teaching us to be imitators. So if you're there in Ephesians 5, starting there in verse 1, it tells us that we ought to be imitators of God as beloved Children. So our goal and our job is to imitate God. You, you want to know where the, uh, the bar is for the church. We need to imitate God the Father in, in his perfection, in his holiness, and who he is in his kingdom-mindedness, in his will, always being steadfast and immovable, always looking forward to the culmination of the universe being ruled and reigned. Through Christ, I mean, that idea that we're going we're gonna to focus on the things that God focuses on. Because God is all about His will, He's all about His glory, and He's all about the good of His people. And therefore, we, in verse 1, ought to be imitators of God as beloved children. Because you've got to recognize that's our relationship. And so, as any good father wants to live a life worthy of imitation, Paul tells even the church that we have to recognize that's our job, is to live lives worthy of of imitation. We see that throughout the book of Philippians when we're talking about uh, Timothy, Epaphroditus, uh, uh, and others. Even Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's this reality in the Christian faith that we have to be imitators of God. And as people look at us, they should see in us people worthy of imitation. Because we're beloved children. Our relationship with God is that we would reflect something about the nature and the character of God. And then verse 2 tells us to walk in love and recognize that he says imitate God. And then the very next phrase is, okay, here's how we're going to do that. We're going to walk in love. This is what we're going to do. We're going to consider others more significant than ourselves. We are going to do unto others as we would have them do to us, which is where we get in verse 12 in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, this idea that we are going to imitate God. And we're going to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, as we imitate God, how do we know how to do that? Well, we had the incarnation of God in Christ, and as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, therefore we know how to imitate God, 
because we have had the incarnation of God here in Christ on earth. Therefore, go live like Christ. It's important as we get to Matthew 7, because as we're going to find in the, the sermon that a genuine salvation, that is, those of us who, who have salvation in us wrought through the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are empowered as believers to imitate the unwavering generosity of God. And we get to do that through our own commitment to gospel-powered generosity. And that's our main point this morning. You'll see it on your screen as it pops up over there. There it is. Genuine salvation empowers believers to imitate the unwavering generosity of God through their own commitment to gospel-powered generosity. And you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I already looked at the passage before I got in here, Pastor. Doesn't it say, ask, and it'll be given to you? Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Isn't this about me? Right? Isn't this about me praying to God and him giving me the things? In part, it is. But if that's as far as you go with this text, you've missed the whole point of the text. And as a matter of fact, you missed the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. So when you look at it, and I hope you do, go ahead and put your eyes on it. Turn to Matthew 7 if you haven't in your Bible already. Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. And we're going to end the section that we would we call the kingdom ethics session section. That is, that there is all of this Sermon on the Mount here that we have gone through so far, uh, where Jesus is saying, we need to live righteous lives. And we can't do that apart from Christ, and we we're going to get there. But the reality is, is this is the expectation for those who call themselves children of God. You have to live a righteous life, and this is what it looks like in relationship to one another. And we're going to see that here come to a close in the next few verses. So if you will, go ahead and look there at Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So there in verse 7 you have these three imperatives. It's like, okay, as a Christian, as a child of God, you have the ability and the privilege to do something, and God is going to hear and respond to you as a father. So if you ask God, it's going to be given to you. There's your, imper- there's your imperative is ask. And, and it's going to be given to you. And you see that, that uh, the participle there in verse 8 that says, everyone who asks receives. So there you pair those together in verse 7 and verse 8. It says, ask and it's going to get, be given to you. And you've got to recognize every one of God's children who asks receive. Well, there's something really important there for the Christian to recognize. The access you have to the Father through Christ Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit within you, you have this profound position in God's kingdom that when you go to God... He hears you, and he answers you as his child. And you see that, again, uh, repeated twice in different words. Seek, and you will find. There's your imperative. And then that participle verb in there in verse 8 says, the one who seeks will find. Like, here's the promise here, if you, you can look at it. Everyone who asks will receive. Everyone who seeks will find. God will ensure that the child who is asking him in faith is going to receive what he asks for. And then thirdly, if you knock, the door will be open to you. And in verse 8, you see that recapitulated. Uh, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Here's a fundamental truth that those who actively pursue God through Christ have unfettered access to the abundance that God provides his children. And if you can't get past that in here, you can't get to anywhere else in this sermon. And I mean that because I know, like, I'm, look, I'm cynical too, okay? I, I, if you're like me, you're looking at this and you're saying, I don't, I don't see it. I, don't, I ask and seek and knock. I know a lot of people who don't get what they want and ask God for things that they don't get. And you know, I, just, I don't get it. It sounds great. It sounds very therapeutic. It sounds very pie in the sky. But this is just not how the world works. It is how the countercultural kingdom of God works. And if I look at the Sermon on the Mount and, and I live accordingly through the power of Christ, and you've got to recognize that, so often when it comes to our lives as Christians, we live under the power of ourselves. I live through the power of Hayden. 
And you're right, as I ask, seek, and knock through the power of Hayden, there is no promise that any of my desires are going to get answered by God because I'm seeking my own advancement through my own power. And yeah, I think if we're asking God in those ways, there is no reality there for us that what we're asking and seeking and knocking for is going to be answered. God has no, uh, God has no desire to answer the prayers of people living on their own strength, even his children, as we'll get to in a moment. But to recognize your position in God's kingdom as his beloved child. Okay, think about this. As his beloved child. And as you go to God as his beloved child, walking in his will, this doesn't mean that you've never sinned or you never will sin. This means I am sick of my sin. I'm looking forward to the righteousness of Christ being revealed. And until then, I'm going to rely on the spirit-empowered work inside of me to walk according to the will of God. And you ask and you seek and you knock and you will receive. The door will be open to you and God is going to answer your prayers because it's done in obedience to the kingdom of God. And it benefits God abundantly in this life to give to his children who are manifesting his kingdom principles in this life. Right? It, does, it is no good in God's economy, if you will, for him not to answer prayers of his saints as they're living life here, awaiting for the culmination of the kingdom. You recognize that. It does God all the benefit of the world to, in his kingdom outposts, in his local churches, as children are going to him and petitioning him, asking and seeking and knocking, that God would providentially care for his children, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. You got to recognize that is the case in the Christian life. And you're going to have a lot of implications, and I don't have time to get to all the implications here, but you have to recognize if you can't grasp that, the rest of this, you're, we're, just going, we're just going to absolutely destroy the application for the rest of this text. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to recognize God is good. You got to recognize that God loves his children, and God gives good things to his children. And we got to recognize that if any of the rest of this text is going to make any sense to us whatsoever. we got to recognize that God's good and his generous hand is toward his children. I mean, it's there toward his children. And we see that, obviously, through the sending of his own son for the benefit I and mean, for the justification of people that he's called to himself on earth. So you want to ask, how far is God's love willing to go? If it's willing to go all the way to the life of his son, how much more less is it willing to go? Do you recognize that, right? We're arguing from, from greater to less. If he's willing to give his son, how much more is he willing to give the lesser things? Right? We even talked about that a couple weeks ago. If he's willing to feed the birds, the least of creation, how much more is he willing to feed those who are the pinnacle of his creation. Same concept. You see that we're going to see it over and over again here, even in the text. But we have to recognize that as his children ask, seek, and knock, God is there graciously providing for them. You can sum it up in point number one. You need to recall God's open-handedness. Recall God's open-handedness. When we look in Scripture, you see it everywhere. I pray as you are living unto the Lord here, even in this life, you're, you notice this. I can't help, even in my own frailty, even in my own sin, uh, and even in my own just self-pity, often look around and think, wow, God is just so kind and gracious, and his hands are open to his creation, even as they're stumbling and bumbling forward. He's still kind, and he's still open-handed, and he is still so good and kind to his people. Is there sin in the world? Absolutely. Are there still people dying of chronic illness? Absolutely. But the reality of sin, as it is ingrained in the fabric of creation, does nothing to deter us from understanding that God is open-handed and kind to his children. But we have to understand something. If we're going to recognize it, at least if you're somebody who has claimed to ask God for so much that you've never got, we, we at least need to get to this place in the sermon. And it is this, that God's open-handedness doesn't necessitate, on God's part, limitless yeses. Okay? Okay, you, you recognize that. It doesn't. It doesn't necessitate. God doesn't have to give limitless yeses to be an open-handed God. He doesn't have to do it. You don't expect anybody to do that. In this world, we don't expect our bosses to do it. We don't, ex- we don't even expect our parents to do it. As a matter of fact, as a parent, it is incumbent upon you to not hand out limitless yeses. It would do no good for your children as a parent to hand out limitless yeses. But what you do hand out is limitless care. 
to you. There's quite a bit different there. We recognize it as a parent, and even children recognize this. You get to a certain age, you ask a child, hey, uh, would your parents really have your best interests in mind if they always tell you yes all the time? And they would say, because it's, the reality is in front, empirically, we can tell if I got everything I ever wanted, even if it was bad for me, and I didn't know it in the moment, that would not be a good parent. We don't expect that from our parents, but in some way, for us to classify and categorically place God in, in a place of open-handedness, it necessitates that he'd have to give us every single thing we want limitlessly. Like, that's our, that's our, our standard for God being kind and good, only if he gives me everything I want. I would say that would not be a benevolent God. That would be a, a malevolent God who would just go ahead and give you everything you've ever wanted. When he doesn't consider his will and his kingdom first, it does no good for you. And you need to recognize that. If God does not consider his will, his glory, and his kingdom first as he answers your prayers, and that means anything that he would give you outside of his kingdom and his glory and his will would not be beneficial for you whatsoever because it would be temporary at best and it would lead to no eternal consequences whatsoever. And for us to be entertained by lesser answers would be for us to completely miss the point of God's kingdom to come. So it isn't in God's best interest to give us limitless yeses. But it is in God's best interest and in his character and his very nature to give us limitless care. And that's what we're talking about. When I recall God's open-handedness, I recognize that there's nothing that God isn't willing to do to care for his people. And we see that. As, as we have even, so many of us been desensitized when we even talk about the gospel. Like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. But do you get it? We talk about God's limitless care, and we recognize that God is willing to go to the extremes to say, I'm going to care for the creation that I made, and I'm going to give them a way back to me so that they could fulfill my will and live for the kingdom to come. I mean, we see that even in, in Romans 8. Jot down Romans 8, 32. We see God's open-handedness even here. The generosity of God, the, the liberality of God to say everything. I'm going to give everything to the limitless care of my children. And we see it very, very prominently in, in Romans 8, 32. There, it says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So you see that. I mean, Paul makes, Paul makes the point that I was, I was even sharing earlier. It doesn't make sense for you to categorically place God in this place of not caring for you because he doesn't give you every single thing you've ever asked for when he's given you the most important thing that could ever have been given, the crown of heaven, his son. So if you ever wonder, does God care? Does he love you? All you got to do is go to Romans 8.32 and say he didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Obviously, we, we see some eschatological realities there, don't we? Right? How will he not much more give us all things through Christ? That means as everything attached to Christ in his rule and his reign is of somehow, in some way, an inheritance and a benefit for his children. You got to recognize that, and that, if, that's not, if that isn't awe-inspiring to you as a Christian, I don't know. I don't know what to say. You need to go find a better preacher. Uh, but we recognize this, like eschatologically, all, all of all of God's kingdom assets, all pointing towards this consummation of eternity, where Christ is going to rule and reign. He's going to make all the bad things good. He's going to make all the sad things happy. And think about that. All of that has in store for His children. How much more, even in this life, if you ask, seek, and knock, will God not provide? Is it always going to look like what you think it will be? No. I, I really believe that in so many ways, heaven's not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. Okay? But that doesn't any more diminish God's providential care and his concern for you than it does if his care and concern for you in this life doesn't look like what you think it would look like. We have to say, hey, I get that God is generous and I recognize that's just who he is. That is his character in nature, is to be kind and generous. He's holy and he's just. We can't forget those things because if we think God is kind and generous and we detach it from his holiness and his justice, we, we still get a, a very, uh, very distorted picture of what that means in 
its purity. But even so, nevertheless, we've got to recognize God's kind. He's open-handed. This gets to us in way of application, even as we continue looking at these, these texts. But we've got to recognize something about open-handedness. Uh, even for you and I, right? if, if our goal and our job, even like I told you in the introduction, is to imitate God, and God is open-handed, what does that look like for his children? That we would be open-handed. Now, here's one of the biggest problems, I believe, in, in our generation when it comes to the call to imitate God's open-handedness. Uh, we can only really be open-handed as we're depending on the limitless supply of God. Now, if, you're, if your mind went automatically to finances here, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not just talking about your money. I'm talking about everything in your life. Okay? If we're going to be open-handed, we have to depend on the limitless supply of God in our lives and his generosity to his children for us to ever even imagine that we could be open-handed to others. Because here's the problem and the mitigating factor for you and I as we're trying to live a life of generosity and open-handedness. We look at our bank account and we look at our house and we look at the time allotment that we have and we just say, I don't have much. And if I, if I, and my mind is always, I don't have much, that means I'm not given much. I'm not being open-handed much because I look at what I have in the moment and recognize there just isn't much out of all of this for me to do without, to do anything that would imitate God's open-handedness. You see, it's imperative for you and I as Christians to recognize our abundance comes from the limitless supply of God. And as we depend and rely on the limitless supply of God, we can recognize that we, even like the churches in Acts, uh, that we see Paul taking, we are talking about finances, at least there, uh, where Paul says, you know, you gave even more than you could. He's like, I, I want to attest that this church gave more and even extended themselves beyond what was possible because they wanted to be open-handed. They wanted to imitate the generosity of God by saying, you need it, it's yours. Now, the only people who can do this in this life are people saved by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, submitting to the will of God, relying on the open-handedness of God to continue supplying their needs day in and day out, as we've seen in the Lord's Prayer, where it says that you need to ask for your daily bread. You need to ask God every day to provide you what you need. Now, ask, seek, and knock. Are you asking, seeking, and knocking that God would provide for you every single day your needs? Because if you're not, it's very unlikely that you would imitate God's kindness and open-handedness to other people in their daily needs. Do you see how all that connected? It's important. It's the point of this whole text that God is unwavering in his generosity. And yet we are very selective in our generosity. We're very picky about who, what, how, when, why we would be generous. And it, 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 there's no make, make no mistake about it. I think that's why so much in our cynicism, we think God is such a limited God of generosity because we put on God these limitations that we ourselves put on ourselves about when and how we're going to be generous. But this reality is God has none of those barriers and none of those limits that you would place on him, but you do place him on yourself as a reason and rationale of why you shouldn't be generous in this moment. But yet God says, you know what, while you were still a sinner, I'm generous. It seems a lot more happy when you read it in the text, doesn't it? We'll get there. You see this even playing out in Luke 21. Jot that text down, Luke 21. Luke 21, 1 through 4, you know the text. Here you have the widow's might. Right? You have here uh, this very poor widow uh, who's going to the temple and she's putting in her, uh, she's putting what she has there in the offering box. And it says there in verse 1 that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to, listen to this, live on. Okay, live on. Now, is this text teaching us the principle of saying, give every single thing you have so you don't have any food? No, that's not the point. The point of is the faith of the widow. Is her trust 
in the father who provides for her needs. I mean, she throws those, she throws those two copper coins up saying, what do I have to be concerned about? I have a father who cares for my needs, and as I ask, seek, and knock, he will abundantly provide with the limitless capacity of the heavens and the kingdom of God. What do I have to worry about? And I love these because the Bible uses these extreme cases to show you, like, you're, we're not even close to that place, right? Like, we're not even close to needing the things that the widow needed. But yet she, exercising just extreme faith, which we would just call that faith, in God to provide her needs, even in the midst of very uncertain circumstances, that she could say, this is all I got left, and God, you can have that too, which is really the gist there. What we decide to do often in our own hearts, unfortunately, is say, God, you can have this much. All the rest of this is mine. And, and she goes, Jesus, even, even what I have, Lord, is yours. Take it. All that I have left, you can have it. And what that should show you is a normalcy in trusting in the open-handedness of God. Because you have a father who cares for your needs and that he has done that through the Son, and you are then an heir to the throne through Christ. It's really, you can look at it as, as a generational reality. Uh, the Waltons, you, you know the Waltons, right? Not the TV show, uh, but the, they have created one of the most recognizable organizations and institutions in America called Walmart. Okay? Uh, now, uh, the parents, the original uh, couple who started Walmart, the little dime store, what do they call those things? Dime store, what are they? Five and dime. I'm not old enough to know that. All right. A five and dime store back in Arkansas, in northwest Arkansas, years and years and years ago. And I'm sure in their wildest dreams, they couldn't have imagined the multi billion dollar organization that's floating around every corner and every backwoods town in America. Uh, but here we are. Uh, now, since then, there's been two or three generations have passed from those parents. Uh, and as the generations have gone, they had, uh, even the parents had created this uh, foundation. Uh, to fund nonprofits, to fund education, uh, to fund just a number of things. Uh, and as they've done this, even in 2022, they have given half a billion dollars to nonprofits to care for things like education, uh, care for things like feeding uh, those in areas like Arkansas, which in so many places in Arkansas they don't have enough food, they have a lot of food insecurities there. But they said, hey, in the end of the day, we have all of this limitless supply of money, so to speak, and we have what we would call a stewardship. The reality is, is mom and dad got it. It's their money. It's been handed to us to steward for the sake of the good of those around me for generations to come. Now, we often get angry, I don't know why, but you do, we do, okay? We get angry at uh, people and kids who get all their money from mom and dad and hoard it all to themselves, don't we? We get mad at that. We don't like that, greedy people. Uh, but how often do we seek all the benefits from the Father, and yet we want to keep them all to ourselves, and we don't want to open-handedly extend them to other people? Well, it can't be anything less than our own greed when it comes to the abundance that God provides His children. And we just have to be careful as we're looking at those in the world who keep all their things to themselves and recognize that you seek the gift of God, but you seek it for yourself to keep it for yourself for no other reason than for the benefit of you. And we have to say, if that's us, the rest of this is going to be really, really uncomfortable. But if we recognize there's a truth to the reality that as we imitate the open-handedness of God, there is in our lives a fulfillment of the ethical section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope that's what we see, because we're going to see it illustrated, at least in its common grace capacity, in verses 9 through 11. So go ahead and look at Matthew 7, starting in verses 9. Like we did a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus shared some very uh, empirical examples of the birds and the flowers, here we see again uh, an example of a father and his children. And in verse 9, it says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And that would be, that'd be the most evil thing ever. That would be the worst practical joke to play on your kids at lunch, wouldn't it? I mean, to imagine that, you know, dad says, this look, you know, because a stone and a loaf of bread in that time looked pretty similar. And so for you to, to slide a stone into the lunchbox and send old boy over to school, uh, and then he's really hungry, and he gets to lunch, and he sits down, and he's like, my dad sure loves me. 
Like my dad packed my lunch. Look at you. He left me a little note. He said, joke's on you. Don't know what that means yet. All right. Opens it up, gets out, and he's like, what is this? Okay. And we're going to say, no father is going to do that. Dads aren't going to do that. Why? Because what, the, what they're going to do at the end of the day is care for the needs of their children. We know that. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing us to, is don't you even know the most evil fathers in the world take care of their children? Even the, so even the worst tend to take care of the posterity of their life. And you're like, not me. My dad, my dad didn't take care of me. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Okay. All right. we, can, we can swap dad stories. I got plenty to share with you. But, you know, even, even in my dad's life, there were times in my life where even my dad, who didn't see me for years, would, would stop by and get me something. Stop by and care for me in some way that he saw the need to at the moment. Did that mean it carried off throughout the rest of the days? No, but there was just this reality ingrained in him, even as we can see in Romans, this idea that like his conscience bears witness to him that as a father, his job, even as terrible as he's doing at it, is to somehow care for the needs of his son. And we're going to say that is a reality that we see across all of creation. And if, I keep going, let me just keep going. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Again, I'm hungry, I need to eat, I need nourishment for my body, and joke's on you, instead I'm going to give you a snake that looks like a fish. And as you go in for it, it's going to, it's going to hiss at you. Again, joke's on you. No one's doing that. Fathers aren't going to do that. And this is what Jesus then continues by saying in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, this is, and this is a, a statement of the depravity of humanity, and this is important because when we think about depravity, and maybe that's something, uh, maybe you have the term depravity, uh, maybe you defined it well, maybe you have not defined it well at all, but you've got to recognize depravity means that we have no way spiritually to access God because of our sin, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, have no attachment to the inheritance that God has. Zero. You and I have zero capacity. Now, what that doesn't mean is depravity doesn't mean that there isn't ways in which some days that you would hit the mark. Right? Depravity doesn't mean that there is no way in which you would ever do anything good and kind. That mean, it means, though, that you have no capacity to live that out for the glory of God. You have no capacity to hit the mark in such a way where you would every single day be righteous in the sight of God, but that you would regularly miss the mark, miss the righteousness of God, and you have no way of meriting that on your own apart from the work of Christ. That's what depravity means. And this is what Jesus is even getting to in verse 11. They do some good things. The common grace of God displayed in creation is that you know, paternal figures you know, have this innate understanding within them to say, I'm going to care for my posterity. Right? That doesn't mean that they are just good people. That just means that's the way God created people. That's the way God created the world. And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So we're arguing from the lesser to the greater. Right? We're saying, I mean, if people who just got it all wrong are still sometimes hitting the mark and sometimes giving their children what they need, and at the end of the day, if we at least have a mother and father who's worth their salt, that means that I'm living under their roof and they're taking care of my needs. I mean, we're going to say, even though it doesn't make them a Christian if they're taking care of their children, that just makes them good, productive parts of society that's doing the job that they were put themselves into doing. And if they're going to do that, how about your Heavenly Father who gets it right every single time? How about your Heavenly Father who has fell short in nothing ever? How much more is He going to care? what we're seeing here. And really, as, as even as we look at the sequence of this text, I want us, as we're pointing it back to ourselves, we have to ask these three successive questions here. You know, do parents love their children? Yes, they do. So they give to their children what they need. Secondly, does God love his children? Absolutely, he loves his children. So what is he going to do? He's going to give them what they need even to the extent of his own son. He's going to put his own son to death so that his children that he's calling to himself throughout history are going to come to him. He's going to provide for them. Now, the third question is, what about you? 
do you love so as to give to imitate God? Do you love, do you have a capacity of love in your life to be generous in giving to others? And that's really the context here. We're getting closer to the context of what this text is getting us to understand. God does it. Even sinful fathers who don't know Christ from a hole in the ground are going to love their children enough to do kind things to them. But what about you? Do you have the love of the Father in you? Do you love God? Because if you love God, what is going to come out of you is an imitation of the Father in your open-handedness to other people. As you are relying on the limitless supply of God, not that you have a limitless amount of yeses, but you have a commitment to a limitless amount of care from the Father, are you going to entrust yourself to the Father to then display the generosity of God here as we await the return of Christ? That's what we're getting to in the text. It's a question we have to ask, and it's something that we're going to have to sum up. At least we can do that in point number two as we flesh it out some more, is you need to increase your love for others. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. As we look at the text, if we look at verses 7 through 12, we're recognizing that God's calling us to an imitation of him. And if I'm going to imitate him in generosity, well, I have first, before I can be good for anything, I have to learn how to love. And the only way I'm going to learn how to love, and that's when we get to this whole Sermon on the Mount, this ethical teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, is you can't love. We have a small capacity to love. Sure, we're going to imperfectly love our children. Of course we are. They're our image. They look half like us. I mean, how sick would it be if you don't take care of the person that looks like you? Okay? But so many of us, that's the extent. Right? What God wants me to do is take care of my, take care of my child. No, no, no. Now, that's, that's the, even if you see here, right, that's what, that's what everyone's doing. We're, yeah, we're doing that. But what God's doing is God's going to say, no, I'm open-handedness to to all. There, there is a way in which God has been kind to everyone. Of course, there is a particular way that we've already talked about that he is kind to his children, and we're going to say we need to imitate that. We need to increase our love for others. And here's really the gist of this. You know why we don't give more to others? Why we're not more generous to others? Because at the end of the day, we don't care much for them. We don't love them that much. Because anybody that you would love, you would do anything for. You know that. The more you love someone, the more you're willing to do for them. Even to the point, and this is where, you know, and listen, I've preached this to myself twice this week, so I'm not preaching to you, I'm also preaching to me, okay? Uh, when we say, well, how much do I give? Well, you tell me, if your child is in need, how much are you going to give them? I'm giving everything they need. I'm going to give them anything they need, even if you have to do without. Yeah, of course, why wouldn't I do that? Why? Because of your love for them. And God's saying, okay, we need to extend our hearts. Even Paul says, he tells the church to widen your heart. And there's this idea, we got to widen our own hearts to say, if you're willing to do that here for your children, are we willing to do that for God's children? That, I mean, I don't even have to go out to all the corners of the earth. I mean, let's just, can we even ask that about God's children? Are we willing to go without to care for the needs of God's children? You know why I asked that? Because you've already told me, you told me, that it's not unreasonable to suggest that you would go without to care for your children. You, are, you told me that. Okay? So why does it stop there when God has a whole lot of children, too, that he has called us to love? What if we loved one another in that capacity? That I'm going to give you, even beyond my own means, that I would be able that I know that I would love you enough to do without so that you would not have to. Just leave that there. We see Paul telling this to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 3, verse 12 of the first letter to the Thessalonians, which is important because what I love about the first letter to the Thessalonians is Paul is not necessarily rebuking them about much at all. I mean, as a matter of fact, the whole letter is about this encouragement uh, and the kingdom that's coming and about eschatology and that eschatological promise of Christ's return to, to renew all things. I mean, it's much different than the letter to the Galatians or the letter to the Corinthians where Paul's doing a lot of rebuking. Uh, in the letter of Thessalonians, uh, you have Paul saying, you are doing this thing, whether it's loving, whether it's giving, whether it's compassion. He's, and Paul just says, you're already doing this. Do it all the more. I mean, isn't that an encouragement? You're doing this. Just keep on doing it. Grow in this. 
And in one of those instances, in chapter 3, verse 12, it says this. Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So again, Paul is just saying, imitate God. And you can do that by imitating us. We love you. You go and pray that the Lord would make you. And I love that. That's echoes of the new covenant promise in Ezekiel that God is going to cause you to walk in his commandments. And here again, we're going to pray that God would cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. So who are we talking about? One another. Who is that? You tell me. The church. Yeah, that's good. The church. All right. That's the church. That's the bride of Christ. Right. I'm a lot more proud of my wife than that. Right. The bride, the church. That's who that's for. And we're going to increase and abound in our love for the church, for one another. And then there's this really uncomfortable phrase there right after that. And for all. For all? For everyone else? Yes, Paul's saying we got to grow in our love not only for the church, but for everyone else. That's, that's what we're going to do. we got to increase our love for one another, which I do think is first, even here, first in sequence, first in order, that we need to learn how to love one another. Because if we're not going to love one another, we're going to do a real bad job at loving people who aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. We're just not. We're going to do a terrible job. But I'm gonna, and so we have to start with the body of Christ. But everyone who is in Christ has a Holy Spirit that is prompting them and driving them in sanctification, moving them towards holiness. And if we can't figure out how to love one another who are filled with the Holy Spirit, walking towards Christ, I don't know what to say other than we have to ask, am I full of the Holy Spirit? Because if I'm full of the Holy Spirit and you're full of the Holy Spirit, we're going to walk in unity together. Even in the midst of disagreement, we'll reconcile and we'll move forward. If I can't even do that, what hope is there for me? Because this text is calling me to be an imitator of God. And if I can't be an imitator of God, when God causes me to be an imitator of him, what does that say about me? Even so, you're a Christian in here. You're called to increase your love for others. And that's really the application, is that you need to pray that God would increase your love for him, that he would increase your love for one another in this local body, and that you would pray for God to grow your love for all other people. All other people. And the older you get, the more cynical you can become. I mean, you don't even have to be very old to be cynical, but it is not easy as you get older, as you've seen all the bad things in the world. Right? You've seen all the hate. You've seen all the evil. You've seen all the bad things. But you know what I love about when I look at when I see older people? When I see older people who have not been jaded by society, when they're walking in obedience to the Lord, you know why that moves me so deeply? Because the only way that happens is if, is if they're full of the Holy Spirit walking in obedience to the Lord. It's the only reason anybody would make it 80 years and not be sick and tired of everything they see. The only reason they wouldn't is because they're walking in obedience to the Lord. They're increasing their love for other, others and they're walking in an open-handed manner. All you see, when you see when you see senior adults living that way is you see them living with the right kind of stewardship in mind. You see old people living for the Lord, you better believe that they've prayed that God would increase their love for others. Because it doesn't take long to get hurt. It doesn't take long for people to hurt you, to upset you, to wound you. Um, And it takes a work of God for you to love people through it. Now we see this whole, not even this section, but all of this. Everything that we've gone through since chapter 5 is summed up right here in chapter 12. And I do believe it's, it's linked, obviously, to this text, but it's summing up the whole of the Sermon on the Mount's ethical portion of teaching. And we see it here in verse 12. Look at it with me. Matthew 7, 7, no, Matthew 7, 12. So, therefore, now, so what? Well, so what this? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. There's your imperative. Do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Anytime we see in Scripture that this is the law and the prophets, that is this. That's a summation of all of the Old Testament. It's a summation of all of the New Testament. And we say, because I don't know, when you read something like this, you isn't that what the progressives say? Isn't that what the progressive Christians teach us? Isn't that what the world, isn't that what Gandhi's teaching us? Might be. I'm sure a lot of progressive Christians, and I'm sure a lot of other religions take this reality that we see in Scripture and apply it to their worldview. I'm sure they do. Here's the problem that the Sermon on the Mount hits every single time we read it. 
you do not have the propensity and the capacity to fulfill it outside of Christ. So as much as you try, as much as you want to will it to happen, apart from Christ working that within you through the power of the Spirit that he has granted you at salvation, you have no ability to do this. Which is still why, when we're preaching to the church like we are right now, we're calling you to this. Well, they're very, you know, it's very harsh. They're telling us what to do all the time. Yet, we're just saying, you have the Holy Spirit. You have been given the God-given capacity to fulfill this. Perfectly? Absolutely not. That's what forgiveness is for. But forgiveness isn't for us to forget the love of God and live our own life until he comes back and gets us. It's that he is taking us, as as Paul tells the, the Corinthians, from one degree of glory to the next, that he is telling us we have a progress of sanctification that we get to walk in as long as we're waiting on Christ to come back. There's this idea that we got to increase in our love every single day, that we got to be doing to others as we would have them do to us every single day, for this is the law and the prophets. If I want to know, am I fulfilling the will of God? I need to ask myself every day, well, am I doing to others today what I would want them to do for me? That's really, I love this very, uh, very simple, like very low bar litmus test of asking myself, am I living for the Lord? There's a, and here's what I love about that. In Scripture, it tells us often, you need to uh, love others as you want to be loved. Like, or it says this, uh, that uh, when it talks about the greatest commandments, it often tells people that you need to love people like you love yourself. You know, you know why? Because you know how to love yourself. Like You are the best lover of self that has ever existed. And the Bible knows that. And the Bible says that way that you love yourself, give that out to other people. Right? We don't want to be lovers of self, is what Scripture says. We want to be lovers of others, the way that God is a lover of others. And we have to abound in love towards one another, even as we see in First Thessalonians, as we see throughout all the epistles, that we would abound in these things. And we see that applied ethically, biblically, by saying, whatever I want done to me, I'm going to do to you. I can tell you this is the encapsulation. Literarily, it's called an inclusio. Right? We see in Matthew 5.17, Jesus saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I love that, right? Did you see that? Jesus said, I've come to do this. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, I love this because here's your inclusio. Verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So he went from saying, I'm going to fulfill this, to saying, now this is how you fulfill this through me. Okay, you want to ask, does the Sermon on the Mount have to do with my life today? Absolutely. Because as Jesus came to fulfill this perfectly through his birth, his life, his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, he has then now called us to be imitators of him. As we then go do to others as we would have them do to us. This is the law and the prophets. As we sum up everything the Bible says, it says, go do to others as you would have them do to you. Every one of the commandments are put in place because we will not treat other people with dignity the way that God has called us to. We see it in, we see it in the garden. When we have headship gone all wrong in the garden, right? We see, we see men and women not living with each other in the right way. We have deception going on with Satan. And then right after that, you have the first mur- murder in recorded history. All it is, people are not living with one another as they're imitating God. And all that is, is a symptom of the heart problem. And Christ said, I'm going to come deal with that. We call it the golden rule. It's in so many cultures and so many religions that this idea that we just need to treat other people the way we want to treat ourselves. The problem is, it doesn't matter where you go throughout the world, you can't do it. We have no propensity and capacity to do this apart from God increasing that in us through his Holy Spirit. We even see it in Romans. I don't have so much more time. But even in Romans 13, 8 through 10, it tells us to owe no one anything except to love each other. I mean, here's what you owe everybody. And this is, that's the negative. The positive is you owe people something. You ought not to owe them debt, as in money or possessions, but you owe them that you would love them. That's what it says. Owe no one anything except to love each other. And it gives all of the Ten Commandments that we break uh, and that we broke that has required Christ to come and save us. And then he says at the end of verse 9, all the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. This idea that you got to increase in your love for others because that's what it means to fulfill the law. And we go back to this generosity principle. Most of us are say we love our neighbors, but most of us are willing to admit we're not generous to our neighbors, which is really just synonymous of saying if, you can't, if you're not being generous toward other people, you're not loving them. We're willing to say we're not generous because it seems like a lesser condemnation. But what we really see is the synonymous parallelism of saying, I don't love people. Because if I love people, I'd be open-handed to people. And which brings us to the thrust of this, that is the great commandment. It is the law and the prophets to be open-handed to people and to increase in your love for people. And if we're going to do that, we need to do this in its point number three. Extend God's generosity outward. We need to extend God's generosity outward. It needs to come to us, and it does not need to stay with us. We may receive it, but we're going to give it. Uh, I went to the Dead Sea a few years ago. I went to Israel. We weren't to Israel in a couple of years, so get ready for that, and it'll be a fun trip. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get that schedule. We can all go out there together and see where Jesus himself walked. As I was out there, I went to the Dead Sea. And you know, you jump in the Dead Sea, you cannot drown in the Dead Sea. Just FYI. If, if you drown in the Dead Sea, you did it on purpose. Okay, uh, Because the Dead Sea has so much salt, knackle, sodium chloride, right? So much salt in it that if you get into it, it's got a natural buoyancy. I mean, you can almost stand on that water. Like, I'm telling you, if Peter and Jesus were standing on that water, I would have said, no big deal, okay? Uh, because we can all almost stand on that water. Like, it's, it's amazing. You got to go. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, but anyway, this Dead Sea has so much salt in it that it creates an uninhabitable environment. There's nothing living in the Dead Sea. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. One of the main reasons that it is dead and there's so much salt in it, as all the water is moving down from the Sea of Galilee all the way through the Jordan River, it gathers up all of this, all of the sediment, uh, and, and all of, and it's coming down the river, and it all gets into the Dead Sea. And since there is no outlet in the Dead Sea for it to go anywhere else, as all the water gets into the Dead Sea, all the sediment sits in the Dead Sea, and as the water evaporates. All of the things, including the salt that surrounds those hills there in the Dead Sea and all the way up from uh, the Jordan, sit there. And as the water evaporates, all of those minerals stay. And so it continues to get saltier and saltier and saltier and saltier as the years go by. And because of that, because it has no outlet, there is no way for it to get out of there. It's, it has no chance of ever being a hospitable environment for creatures to live. It's a goofy illustration, but it's the same picture we get when it comes to us as Christians. If all we want to do is get, 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 get from God, all the nutrients from God, all the goodness from God, and we want to keep it for ourselves, really at the end of the day, we're going to be no better off and no more inhabitable than the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea gets all the nutrients, it gets all the good, but it does not get rid of any of it, and it becomes spoiled, and it becomes unuseful for any good thing. And I want to make sure that as a church, we're not unuseful because we want to go to God for everything, but we don't want to be open-handed toward other people, recognizing that God wants to be generous to us so that we would be generous to other people. And so maybe, just maybe, the reason that you haven't received so much of what you asked for is because God knows very well that you're not going to be generous with anything that God gives you, but you're going to withhold it all for yourself, which is not the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And if we're going to fulfill the law and the prophets, we need to extend God's generosity outward. Last verse, Hebrews 13, 16. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I love this. I love these simple applications in Scripture that teach us things. How can you be pleasing to God? Share what you have. Give what you have as a living sacrifice. That, that's pleasing to God. Like God says, oh, I like that. That pleases me. That, I, I like it. I love it. That, that really fulfills the law and the prophets. Like we all want to know, when, am I, when do I know that I'm submitting to the Lord? When do I know that I'm in the Lord's will? Well, here it tells me the Lord's will is not to neglect to do good. Share what you have because that pleases the Lord. How do we do that? We say it at our church in a lot of ways. See a need, meet a need. You just see a need, go meet it. That's the easiest way to apply this. Like, you don't always have to be wait to be asked about something for you to meet the need that you see. And you're gonna, our church is going to learn. Maybe they're uncomfortable with it. Maybe they are, but they need to learn how to be loved. Okay? 
Our church is going to learn how to grow in, in love with one another. Well, what if they're offended that I help them? Well, they should not be offended at love being extended. And we're going to we'll work through that too. But what we first have to work through is that we would love, that we would extend, that we would be generous. Well, I'm just not a good gift receiver. Well, okay. I'm so, what does the Bible say? We have to give. We have to not neglect to share what we have, which means if I'm going to share what I have, people have to receive it. We're going to have to learn how to do that as a church, and I'm fine with that. Is it going to be uncomfortable? I'm sure it will, just like everything else we have to do as Christians often. But we're going to learn how to do it because we want to fulfill the law and the prophets through the power of the Holy Spirit that God has gifted us to live according to his will. Because if we want to show the world what generosity looks like, we're going to have to be enacting it in our own lives, which is what I'd love to do even now as we think about generosity. I want us to celebrate the generosity of the Lord's Supper. And so even as I'm speaking, I would love the ushers to come down and begin passing uh, the elements out. Uh, and here's what I have for you as you're receiving these elements. Just keep them in your hand. Uh, don't partake in any of them at this moment. Uh, like we try to do every single Lord's Supper, we want to remind you who the Lord's Supper is for. The Lord's Supper is for God's people. So if you're somebody in here uh, and uh, you have never turned from your sins, placed your trust into Christ, we'd ask that you would hold taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, we say this because even as we look in the, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, as we look at the Lord's Supper and the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, Christ says he's not going to partake of the fruit of the vine again until he eats it with us in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not because if you're in here and you're not a Christian, it's not because we don't like you. But there's this reality in which only God's people are going to eat at the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so all of those who are not God's children are not going to be there. And this right here is both a remembrance of Christ's death on our behalf, celebrated from the Passover uh, until Christ took it and gave it its full meaning through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But even its consummation of, of this being a foreshadowing of the meal that we're going to have there, the only people who are going to be there are going to be God's people. And so we're called in Scripture to withhold the Lord's Supper, from, from those who aren't a Christian. Uh, and our prayer is even now that as we look at this, we're able to feel it, touch it, smell it. I mean, all those olfactory senses that God has given us can help those of us who are saved recognize this is a real thing that's going to happen. And we're remembering a real sacrifice that happened for a real Savior, for real salvation. And there's coming a real day where Christ is coming back that in the same way, those who aren't saved in this room would say, there's a real day of judgment coming. There's a real Savior. There was a real sacrifice. There's real salvation. And there's a real culmination for that. And maybe no one's ever explained it to you that way, but we like to try to do our best at our church to explain why we do things and why we don't. Uh, and so, if that's you. If you're not saved in here, I, I just withhold it. But I still would love you to take time even now to recognize your need for a Savior to recognize your need, if you want to fulfill, even as we see here, the Sermon on the Mount, you want to be an imitator of God, you have to be empowered by God because we're sinners separated from God and we need a Savior. And if that's you, you need to repent, place your trust in the saving work of Christ on the cross, that as you stand before God, you'd be justified not because of works of your own, but because of the work of Christ on your behalf. And if you do that right now, then I invite you to take this. Welcome to the family. But for all the rest of us in here, I want us to do a couple of things. I'm going to step off the stage in a moment. But even as we see the communion celebrated in Scripture, there is a reality that we got to remember the death of Christ. And it's the four R's that I like to help us think through as we're doing the Lord's Supper. I want us to remember who Christ is and what he did on our behalf. I want you to slow down. Right? If you're hungry, this is not going to satisfy you. Maybe eternally, but not here. Okay? All right. But I want this to be an opportunity for you to remember. And I want you to reflect on your life as a living sacrifice. That this is the proof of a living sacrifice in Christ. It's that remembrance that there was a living sacrifice that died for you. And that you, in turn, would be an imitator of God and be a living sacrifice to the Lord. You need to ask yourself, am I being a living sacrifice? Do I need to own up to some realities in my life? Which is that third thing, repent. Like, are there some things today that I need to repent of? Of saying, hey, God, since the last Lord's Supper we did, I just, I honestly, it's not that I've just missed the mark. I have just really not been walking in fellowship with you, and I want to I repent. And if you're willing to do that, then I would also invite you to take this in a moment. 
But if you're not, again, I, Scripture tells us, Paul tells us to withhold if we're unrepentant, lest we become sick and some have even died because they've taken this in a way uh, that is dishonorable to the Lord because they wouldn't repent of their sin. But third, fourthly, I want you to remember what this is. It's a time of rejoicing. As we take this, it's a reminder that we're going to take this with the Lord and it's going to look way more substantive than this, right? We're going to eat a meal in heaven and, it's, and we're going to have a, it's going to be decked out. It's going to be wonderful. Jesus is going to be there and he has been waiting since the time that he ate this with the disciples to the time where we're all going to eat this together. And he said, I ain't doing it again, but you, you do it. And every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me as we look forward to the time where we're all going to do this together in my kingdom. So I'd love for you to do, I would love for you to take a moment and pray. Pray through those four R's. Father, as your son took this with his disciples, he said to take this bread, for it is my body broken for you. And uh, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood being poured out for you. So God, let us remember now why, why we're here as we're waiting on the culmination of history at the return of Christ. Let us take of this now in remembrance of you. In Christ's name, amen.